Thanks so much for listening to the Clifton Church of Christ sermon podcast. We really appreciate you taking the time to listen, and we hope if ever you're in Clifton, Texas, you'll stop by and say hello. We hope you enjoy this sermon. Good morning, everybody. Welcome. We're glad that you're here with us, and we are in our second of three sermons on the book of Esther, which if you didn't get it to hear last week, I hope you can maybe go back and listen because we're going to be putting together the different pieces of the story as we go. But first, I want to talk about three examples of someone being in the right place at the right time. You've heard this phrase before. I was just in the right place at the right time. Uh, there's a, Two of these I found online. They're great, and one of them is a story from Clifton. But one, pilot David Zentner and his wife, they, you know, you know how there's an airport here in Clifton, and it's, it's not like an airport, but it's, you know, an, there's planes, you know, and uh, uh, so I'm imagining this couple, they're flying their little plane that only they can fit in, and when they're flying over the town, they look down and they say, oh, there's our house, and they notice that someone is stealing their travel trailer, <laughs> and so they actually just continued to fly following the thief. Called, or, you know, were able to get the attention of the police, and the robber was dumbfounded at how he was caught so quickly, and uh, just happened to be in the right place at the right time. Another story is of a lady named Dorothy Fletcher, who she was on a flight to Orlando in 2003, and she started to have a heart attack. The flight attendant ran over and was trying to do it, and stood up and said, "Are there any doctors on the plane? Where ha- there's a heart attack." And 15 cardiologists stood up because they were all on a flight to a conference in Orlando. And so she just happened to have a heart attack at the right place at the right time. So, um, And they happened to be in the right place at the right time. Now this story, this is a true story. I'm not going to say the name because I, you know, Catherine talks about HIPAA violations and stuff. But this is uh, something where, I'm not going to say the name because it's maybe none of my business. But at Goodall Witcher, they got this new equipment, this new technology that I believe did some kind of x-rays or scans, something like that, and they were showing it off to the the staff, not just doctors, but all employees are showing it off, and the technician was like, hey, does anybody want to see what this thing can do? And one of the employees, who I think I think is a fairly fit, healthy person, you know, very active person, was like, sure, I'll give it a whirl, laid down, they scanned him, and he immediately went into emergency surgery, because they didn't know but he had some very scary things going on, I want to say, in his heart. And basically, he didn't have any symptoms, didn't know anything was wrong, but just was like, sure, I'll test it out. And after the technician ran it, they were like, we need to get you into a surgery, like, soon. So isn't that crazy, right place? I mean, think about, I don't know if... If he hadn't have, it hadn't gotten caught, I don't know if it would have been months or years. I don't know. But probably it could have been really fatal, potentially. So, when I was growing up, I don't know if your mom was like my mom, but it was basically a cuss word to say the word lucky in my family. Anybody have a mom like that? If ever she heard someone say like, oh, well, that was lucky, she'd be like, watch your mouth. Because for my mom, she firmly believed there was no such thing as luck right? She really believed that we had to have a mindset as we lived our lives that things don't just happen, okay? That there is something, whether we understand it or not, there is some kind of background. Now, the only time we were allowed to say it is because my dad often likes to say, uh, with football games, he says, if you can ever pick to be good or lucky, always choose to be lucky. That's what my dad used to always say. But in sports, you're allowed to, you know, bend the rules because, you know, God doesn't care about sports. But everything else, everything else is something where 
My mom was like, you can't use luck because we're going to have to, we're going to have to wait and be patient. We may never know, but we have to see a way in which the things that are happening are not just chance. And this week, actually this week and next week, I'm planning on starting next week with a couple more right place at the right time stories. But this week and next week, we're going to be looking at the ways that people in this story are in the right place at the right time. But instead of saying that phrase, what I'd like to say is that we, and the people in the story, we are in a place at a time for a purpose. Okay? So let's go ahead and you know introduce you to where we are in the story. This young orphan uh, named Hadassah, that also named Esther, has been chosen by the king to be his queen, his wife, his top in his harem, and she is now in the palace, and so there's this little story that is going to make more sense next week's sermon, but I've got to bring it up now, where Mordecai, her uncle, is working, or cousin, is working there at the the palace, and he notices two other guards, and it sounds like they're talking about a conspiracy to kill the king, and so he tells Esther, hey, um, I think there's some people that are going to try and assassinate the king, and Esther, she tells the king, hey, sounds like you're maybe going to get assassinated by these two guys, and they do some investigating. It finds out they're true, and in his book that he keeps of his records, he says, write down that Mordecai um, is the one who told me that these people were going to assassinate me, and just make a note of that. Okay, so log that away for next week. Now, in chapter 3 of Esther, we're introduced to the villain of the story, the one where when he appears on the scene, everyone listening to the story, like a boo, you know. So we're introduced to Haman. And the king, uh, Haman is one of the king's captains or officials or nobles, and the king puts him to the highest place of all the nobles and officials except for himself. And he tells everyone, when you see Haman going by, you should kneel down before him because he's such a big deal. And so starting in Esther verse 5, we get this little line. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. He's like, that's not enough. I want to get vengeance on this guy and just killing him, that's not enough for me. I Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. So Haman, he goes to the king. And remember what I said last time, this king has no self, uh, no ability to make any decisions by himself. Everything he does throughout the whole story is because someone uh, is in his ear whispering. And Haman says, Hey, listen, there are these people that are living in your providences. They're called the Jews. And they don't don't obey your rules. They don't live by our customs. And we should get rid of all of them. We should wipe them out. And the king approves of the idea. Oh, also, Haman at the very end says, By the way, I'll pay you a lot of money if you do this. Now, what's weird is the king, he says, Okay, let's do it. He takes his signet ring. He uh, approves of the edict. And he says, and by the way, you can keep your money. So I don't know, I guess maybe his motivation is that he's heard there's these people that aren't listening to his laws. And so he approves of it. He writes this rule and they send it out to all the provinces. Uh, provinces. And so you can imagine, kind of like in any of the Robin Hood movies that you see, where you know there's the wanted poster of Robin Hood you know, that's stapled all around the town. You get these things that just get posted all over town. On this day, in the 12th month of Adar, all of the Jews living in Babylon are going to be killed, wiped out. Just, just a heads up to everybody. Here's, this, this is coming up soon. So now let's pick up in Esther 4, and we're going to be reading from Esther 4 for the rest of this morning. When Morde- hey, By the way, uh, Melissa, if ever I get behind on the reading, I'll let you click along, okay? But I think I can do it. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, when he saw the news of what was coming to the people, the Jewish people, and by the way, I, I, I should say, 
right now with Haman doing this, this is the conflict of the story. You know, we've had this story. There's been different things. But now all of a sudden, this is the true, what's going to happen? You know, this is the, uh, for all of you people that have to read English, you know, the plot line, we now have the key conflict. Coming up soon, God's people are going to be wiped out in Babylon. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city. So he left the palace, he went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which, he, the edict, uh, to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's eunuchs and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai. So her and Mordecai have been keeping in touch. You know, they've been able to see each other at least somewhat frequently. And now all of a sudden he's not there. I'm sure she's kind of like, hey, where's Mordecai? We've been talking. Now he's not here. Her attendants, they tell her that, and she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth. She's like, hey, put these on so you can come back into the palace. But he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, assigned to attend to her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. Now, this is the most famous story, probably in the book of Esther, this little section. But one thing that I hadn't realized until studying for this sermon is Esther and Mordecai don't even have this conversation. It's her talking to her attendant, Hathak. And him running out to Mordecai and then talking to Mordecai and then running back to Esther. It makes it a little less uh, intimate, but it also kind of makes it a little more dangerous, a little more top secret. Like there's this spy that's going back and forth talking between him and the queen. Uh, So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, the capital, to show to Esther and explain to her. And he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. She instructed him to say to Mordecai, All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death, unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But thirty days have passed since I was called in to go to the king. So this is something we got to pause and just take time out. This is where we're once again reminded this is not like, oh, they're such a sweet couple together. She is always on her own unless she's summoned in to spend the night with him. Okay, so it's not one of these very sweet like, oh, I'll just, I I don't know, uh, I don't know if I should bring it up to him. It's like literally, I don't know when the next time I'm going to go in. And this is where you see Esther's bravery because what Mordecai says is, hey, how about the next time you go, you tell him. And she says, it's been 30 days, so I don't know when the next chance I'm going to get is. So I'm going to have to be the one that doesn't get called in to him because that's Mordecai's idea. Mordecai's idea is, hey, next time you're called in, because Mordecai doesn't know, is it going to be in a day? Is it going to be in a week? And she says, listen, I don't, I'm the one that's telling Mordecai the idea of, I don't know when the next chance is going to be, so I'm going to have to be the one that goes into the court without being summoned, and I could die. I could literally be killed if he says, I didn't want you to come kill her. Okay. When Esther's words were reached, were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. This is the most famous part of Esther. 
Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa, and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. Man, it's like chilling. This is, I mean, this is amazing stuff. So I want to stick on this verse for just a second, and I want you to notice these highlighted pieces are going to be the rest of my sermon. We're going to have to, we want to really talk about these key pieces. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. So let's talk about deliverance for a second. I love the idea, and and someone that's a part of this church is the one that pointed this out to me for the first time, that he says, if you don't say anything... He says it here. You and your father's family, we are going to perish. But that doesn't mean that at the end of the day, deliverance is not going to come from somewhere. And I just want you to think about the confidence of Mordecai to be able to say that. Like, think about just how profound you have to have a view of the God who rescues us, as Steve said in his communion, you know, that we come and celebrate that we have been rescued from death by God. The fact that this person knows no matter what you see in the next week or month or year, at the end of the day, whether you're a part of it or not, deliverance is going to come from somewhere. I just think that's incredibly powerful. It's almost, it's like when you think of Moses being called by the burning bush. Or the burning bush is there. One, Moses could have completely ignored it, but he saw it and went and followed it. And then when he got there and God said to him, I'm going to send you back to free the people, Moses could have said, no thanks. But guess what? The answer would have been, God would, he would have been like, man, I'm not going to be able to free the people from Exodus now, from slavery in Egypt. Oh, it's over. Genesis was so good. What are we going to do in Exodus and Leviticus? You know, the story's over. No. Deliverance would have come from somewhere. You with me? Does that make sense? It's like that. I love that passage where Jesus says it in Luke 19, where some of the Pharisees in the crowd, they say to Jesus, Teacher, you should tell your disciples to stop doing this. And he says, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Worshiping God is going to happen. And if we don't do it, the rocks will do it. Right? Deliverance is going to happen. Now, if you're a part of it, great. But no matter what, and we know as Christians, people that are living post-Jesus, we know that God's final answer, that in everything, will deliverance ever come? We keep losing all these battles. Who's going to win the war? Jesus is the answer that deliverance has come, and when he comes again, it will fully come the final time. You with me? Deliverance is the final word. All right, now, the next part is this, I want to focus on is this last portion right here. This line, for such a time as this. I think all of us have thought this before or some point in our life will think this question. Why am I here? Or how did I get here? And I want, I want to think for a second about a, an example from my own life. I grew up in Belton, Texas. Everybody I knew was 
in Belton, Texas. All my friends, Leon Heights Elementary. All my friends, Belton Middle School. All my friends, freshman year, Belton High School. All my friends lived in a bike's ride away from me. You know what I mean? Like, that was my world. I've said this before, but when my sister went to ACU and she met a guy from North Carolina, I was like, North Carolina? You're not going to marry somebody from like 10 minutes away from here? Like, this is what we do, right? This is, this is our bubble. And the day came where my dad wanted to preach, didn't get the opportunity to preach a few times at Belton, and so he took an opportunity at Lake Jackson. And I remember we moved to Lake Jackson, and it's all a whirlwind. My parents drive my sister to ACU to drop her off at the dorm. The day they get back, we load up the trailer. We move to Lake Jackson so I can start two-a-days the next day. I still can see it as clear as day, sitting in the hall as all these guys are getting their shoulder pads and helmets for the season, and I don't know any of them. And I'm just sitting there quiet, which isn't me, you know? Like, a new experience for me, right? Sitting for hours in silence. And I'm sitting there, and I remember in the first week of school, walking from my homeroom class before football practice, my homeroom teacher was the dance teacher, Miss Kelsey, and she would, like, let all of us out. Like, she'd be like, okay, y'all are all here. Go ahead. Go where you want. She was not a great homeroom teacher. Or to us, she was the best homeroom teacher. And uh, so I'm walking on my way to football practice, and I remember looking up and seeing Brazoswood High School and just having this very intense moment of going, why am I here? You know, just like, this was never in the plot line. Like, I was supposed to be at Belton High School, Belton Tigers, you know. I was supposed, all this is what I was supposed to have. And now I'm in this place, the school is blue, not red. The, like, what happened? And it was a very much a whirlwind moment of why am I here? Now that is a very small example. Now in, as a sophomore in high school, it felt huge. But all of us have gone through moments where we've gone through life or something in life has happened and we look up one day and go, what on earth? How is, how is this going on? How is this crumbling around me? Or how, how did I become this person? And you can imagine Esther probably is feeling the same thing. She grew up, she's an orphan. She's lost both her parents. Mordecai takes her in. She's living in the palace. And in the span of months, she is the queen of the empire. You know, she is the top in the harem. And I'm sure she had plenty of moments going, what on earth? How am I here? How am I married to this man that I see occasionally who doesn't really love me but I'm a part of his harem? How am I now like kind of the jealousy of everyone else in the kingdom but also I'm not necessarily happy? How how did I get here? And the thing, the question that the Bible and Esther is posing is, and Mordecai says is, what if you are where you are and these things have occurred to you for you to be this person in this moment right now? Now, this is the paradox of the question. I'm going to spend just two seconds because I know when I do these paradox things, it's cool to me, but I think everyone just stares blankly back at me. Here's the paradox. Deliverance is going to come whether you participate in it or not, Esther. But by the way, I want you to choose to be a part of it. There's not Esther's not like, oh, I heard Mordecai say deliverance is going to come from somewhere, so... I guess I'll just tap out. There is still agency in whether or not you're going to participate. And there is also still utter confidence that even if you don't, God's not going to be in trouble. You understand the paradox? Now, we can read through this whole story, and if Esther goes, sorry, I'm not, history is different. There's no denying. At the same time, history, the end of the story, is not any different because God's going to bring deliverance. You with me? Paradox. All right. So, here is the question. 
And I said a second ago, you have gone through what you've gone through, and you are where you are for a purpose in God's story of deliverance today, tomorrow, and the rest of your life. And yesterday and all the days that have come before. School teachers, you are where you are for such a time as this. You don't know why you're driving that bus, but there might be a student on your bus that needs you to be that bus driver. Lawyers, you are where you are for such a time as this because there may be that one client that needed exactly you in that place. Parents, you are where you are and you've gone through what you've gone through so that when something comes up in your story, you're able to say, I don't know why, but I have gone through what I've gone through to be able to be your parent in this moment. Teens, businessmen and women, retired folks, empty nesters, medical professionals, construction workers, police officers, waiter and waitresses, you are where you are and you've been through what you've been through for such a time as this. Now the question you have to ask yourself, which is the question Esther gets asked, will you leverage your position for God's purposes? I've had conversations with my mom who works in the school district. She'll talk to me about how there's teachers who wish they could talk about God, but they might get fired. Who wish they could say something about Jesus, but they don't know how it's going to impact their career. You are in your position, and the question is, will you leverage that even if there is great cost to do so? With every single one of us, there is a possibility that if we use our position for Christ, it will cost us something. For some of us, it's your credibility. For some of us, it's our jobs. For some of us, it's our status in this town. God wants us to leverage our position in every place. He doesn't just say, well, you know, if you're important, leverage your position. No, He needs Christians in every corner of the world. Maybe not drug dealers, but in every corner of the world so that you can be that Christian police officer to leverage that position that you have for good. So that you can be that Christian principal to leverage that position you have for good. In every corner, from the top to the bottom, from the side to the side. Now with that said, Esther does look at it though from a particular angle. Esther is not leveraging a position from the bottom. Esther is leveraging a position from literally the very top. And there is something to be said that Esther is in the palace. And so I know many of you probably don't think, I'm in the palace. But some of you, in your sphere, you might be at the top. Does that make sense? I mean, uh, my, I have lunch once a week with Cody Creel, the preacher at the, or I have breakfast with him once a week, the preacher of the Baptist church. He may not realize it, but in a small rural Texas town close to a Baptist university, he is close to the top. Does that make sense? Coach, Hunt, or Coach Finney, uh, the head football coach of a small rural town, he is at the top. Does that make sense? And the question is, will you leverage that top position? Because the higher you up, the higher up you are, (laughs) higher you up, the higher up you are, the more it's going to cost you because there's a further fall. And the more influence you have over more people. Okay, does that make sense? All right. This is where Mordecai brings in a very great line that I didn't quite bring up as much earlier, but it's still in verse 14. There is a cost to you, Esther, if you leverage your position. You may go into there, and even though he's not the one that brought up the idea, there is a cost if you go in unsummoned before the king. You might die. But there is also a cost if you don't leverage your position. He says, in verse 14, he says, if you remain silent, relief and deliverance is going to arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. So when she says, if I perish, I perish, 
in a lot of ways, she's like, I am going to maybe perish either way. Does that make sense? If I stay silent and people find out I'm a Jew, I perish. If I speak up and I'm not summoned, I may perish. If I perish, I perish. And so if you go to the king, you might die. But if you remain silent, you'll die. And if we leverage our position, we might get fired. But if we don't, we might lose our heart and not be able to look ourselves in the mirror ever again. As Jesus would say, you might lose your soul. And he's not talking about eternal. He's talking about losing who you are. When I have, for me, the place I see this most clearly, and I bet you've had this too, when I have a friend who is doing something or about to do something that I think is legitimately going to really hurt his life, like really damage their life in a long-term kind of way, I know that I want to have, I don't want to have that conversation with them, but I know by having that hard conversation, hopefully in love, hopefully in peace, in humility, with lots of prayer, bathed in prayer, I know that there is a chance that they may never speak to me ever again. There's a cost to having this hard conversation that I might lose all credibility with them. But I also know that if I'm a really good friend, there is no one that's in a better position to leverage that friendship for good than me. That there is no one else who's in a better spot than me to have that leveraging conversation. Now, by the way, if you've been a terrible friend, this doesn't apply to you, okay? If you're like, yeah, we're on Facebook, friends. Don't be this person. If you are actually this person's close confidant and friend, if... If Reese wanted to say something to Allie, Reese has all trust equity built up for Allie that Allie's going to go, this is Reese. I have to listen to her. And if she leverages that to change something, she may, it may cost the friendship. But if I didn't have those conversations with my two friends, I would never be able to look myself in the eye because I knew that I could have done something to help my friend and I didn't. Does that make sense? If 30 years down the road, this, my friend is in a terrible space in their life, whether they know it or not, or whether they're dead spiritually, and I'm going, well, I called it. That's not how I'm going to feel. I'm going to think, I could have done something. And there, that is a cost that the question you have to ask is, are you willing to pay the cost of not leveraging your ability in that situation? So here's the summary. Here's the summary of the whole sermon. Why did I go through all of this? When you hear that question, why did I go through this? For different of you, some of them are small examples, and I know there are people in this audience where you think of a very painful, tragic, awful thing. And you will never get an answer to that question this side of heaven. Job asks that question, and God doesn't say, well, here's why. He says, I'm God. And by the way, once you get to heaven, I don't think you're going to care about the answer to that question. I think you're going to be really happy to be there. Okay? But you have a thought whenever I say, why did I go through this? Something comes to your mind. You have a thought when I say, why am I here where I'm at right now? Something comes to your mind. And Esther teaches us that God is at work for his purposes and his promises and his plan. And he is inviting us. He's imploring us to take what we've been through and where we are for such a time as this. Now, for you, your first such a time as this may not be Sunday, October 22nd, 2023. But it might be in a week, it might be in a month, it might be in decades that you are able to go. I was able to have this conversation. I was able to be this person. I was able to lead this way, serve this way, because God put me in a time for such a place for such a time as this. For His deliverance, for His redemption, His restoration, His reconciliation. 
So this story is rightfully called Esther because Esther is the hero. And she needs to be the one that we talk about the most. But I'd like to point out one more example of someone, a less talked about example, of someone being in a for such a time as this place. In Esther chapter 2, I don't have it on the screen, but if you want to turn in your Bibles, verse 7. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. Before any of the scenes in this story, we read about a man who chose whether or not he was going to adopt his cousin. And he had to ask himself the question, Whenever people said, why is all this happening? Why are my loved ones dying? Why is this little girl all by herself now? And he had to say to himself, I don't know the answer, but I am in a place for such a time as this to be the father figure that this little girl needs. And so you may hear this story and you may think, well, I'm not the queen of Persia, so I'm not going to go through this. But every single one of us have moments where you are put in places like Mordecai where there's potentially a well, maybe, I don't know, I have no answer why this happened, but I know I'm here, I know I've been through what I've been through, and I have this opportunity to step up and say, this is going to cost me something. You better believe Mordecai was like, man, this is going to cost me a lot to take in this little girl. But what would it cost him not to? To leave her as an orphan. Say, somebody else take her. And he knew, I am in this situation. I am able to talk to Esther right now and leverage our relationship because I went through a moment of, for such a time as this, I chose to say, I don't know why, but I'm going to be a part of God's plan for redemption, restoration, and reconciliation by taking care of this little girl, who someday is going to be a part of God's plan for deliverance and redemption and reconciliation and restoration in God's plan in the future. May we be the same people that have trust never to go, well, that sure was lucky that that happened, or that was unlucky, but to have the eyes to go, I don't know why, and I may never know why. But I am going to be the person that has the eyes and ears to look for constantly, maybe. The reason I've gone through what I've gone through, and the reason I am where I am, is for this purpose in God's story. If any of you have any prayer requests, elders are going to be standing at the doors while we stand and while we sing this song.